a lot of people in Mississippi, even the most right-wing people I know, would say that if they didn't get federal funds, Mississippi would not even resemble an American state. And what's really, really scary is that that money is not reaching the people who need it the most, and it's, it's part of a callous disregard for the most vulnerable amongst us. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, really exciting. Hispanic Heritage Month starts today, just in time for us to announce a new podcast called Pulso y Pendulo. It's covering the issues most relevant to the Latino community. And we're going to release this show next week. And our listeners can go and subscribe to this. If you just search Pulso y Pendulo on Spotify Podcast, wherever you get your shows. And this is going to be like The Lost Debate. It's going to cover breaking news. We're going to try to cut through polarization. It's going to include national news that's relevant to everybody, but also issues specific to the Hispanic and Latino communities. So the trailer just dropped today. People can go online and check that out. And we're really excited to see where this goes next week and beyond. It'll come out once every week moving forward. But with that, we got a lot to talk about today, Ricky. We got public fraud in Mississippi involving Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre. We've got a renewed debate over whether the TSA should exist. And we got more developments in the post Roe versus Wade world. But first is a bombshell report from the New York Times. Ricky, what's going on with these yeshivas? Yeah, so a new investigation from the Times that interviewed 275 people from 100 schools, um, Hasidic schools from Brooklyn and the Lower Hudson Valley in New York that educate 50,000 boys found that these schools are systemically violating state laws just to provide a rudimentary education to these boys. Less than 1% were at grade level achievement benchmarks in 2019, which is the latest data that's available. And girls' schools do slightly better, but still way below public school levels, private school levels. It's a huge systemic issue that you know investigations stem back to 2015 under de Blasio, but this is like a real hard-hitting bombshell report. And there's tons of personal testimony from people who've been through that experience. I was one of those boys. I went to a yeshiva called Ahale Torah in Crown Heights. I didn't learn enough history to even know who Martin Luther King was. Oftentimes you'll see politicians afraid to do anything or even say anything because the community votes as a block and it's a powerful voting block. So the reason that this is so controversial in part is because these schools, even though they're private religious schools, they do receive federal funding, more than a billion dollars worth of government funds in the last four years. Um, And even though they take less per people, they still are charging tuition. So that's a scandal. Just to clarify, they receive uh, less per pupil than traditional public schools, but more funding on average from the government than other private schools and yes. private religious schools. And that's part of what I think people are up in arms about. But I think if, you, if you're if you a listener and depending on where you are in the country, you may not interact with members of the Hasidic community or know what a yeshiva is. So I, we just you know quickly define some terms. A yeshiva is uh, a traditional Jewish educational institution, which is focused mainly on the study of religious texts. And these schools can vary pretty dramatically depending on which element of the Jewish community and which element of the Orthodox community we're talking about. And the reason why the New York Times piece primarily focuses on boys is because yeshivas were historically reserved for boys only, and which, as you noted, like it also can include women, and there's some data in there about that, about women and girls. Now, they're 
particular sect of Judaism here that's at issue is Hasidic Judaism, which there's a pretty significant population of Hasidic Jews in New York. There are about 200,000 in the New York City and New York area. That's roughly 10% of the Jewish population in New York. And this is a, a sect within Haredi Judaism, which is an Orthodox sect. Uh, but there are many different types of Orthodox Jews, and this is one sect within there. There are certain Orthodox Jews that are more assimilated within uh, traditional New York life and American life. And then there are, are sects like the Hasidic Jews, which I would say are more traditional, I would say more insular to their own community. And, and their schools, I think, are a reflection of that, where they're much less likely to teach traditional subjects. They have less reading and math instruction, less science and social studies instruction. In certain cases, some of those other subjects don't show up at all or only show up in a, in a few grades. And so that's what I think the New York Times was reacting to. They cite some pretty startling data because in certain cases in order to take public funds they had to take state tests mm -hmm. uh, in some of these institutions and it showed that one percent of students in these institutions were on grade level and proficient in reading and math which is pretty startling yeah there are only nine schools in new york that test that low and they're all um, hasidic boys schools and as we said before the girls schools are more variable but tend to do better on these tests and there are a variety of controversies over how funds have been allocated that the times goes through including noting that a ton of these schools are using voucher systems while there are so many people in new york and outside that community that are on waiting lists for just years on end. They were also counting older students at some institutions that are pursuing just a yeshiva education is pursuing higher education degrees in religious studies, which allowed them to access more funding. Um, one school was using anti-poverty money to pay for food from retailers that they own. There was $100 million for um, a Title I program for federal funding, which is for secular education, but they were using it for tests, um, attendance, and data and more secular uses. Uh, $30 million in the year before the pandemic was allocated specifically for them for transportation that other um, districts wouldn't have gotten. So there's a variety of different scandals here. Um, $200,000 million or $200, for internet services, but students aren't allowed to use the internet. Mm. So there's, I think there are varying degrees of like what explanation there could be underlying that. Like, for example, if you are using the secular funding for secular operations, I suppose that's one thing. But certainly there's concern over how, like where the line should be drawn between um, secular schooling and the government funding that and religious schooling and whether there is even secular education going on in the first place when right. you have 1% of students who can reach benchmarks. Yeah. And I think if you're listening at home and you're like, well, what do I make of this story? If you're in New York, obviously there's a taxpayer element of it. But I think if you're not, I think this is a case where you could take, I would say, a fairly extreme example to to you know, scene set on how you think about privatization of education. Because yeah. I'm somebody who I would say, compared to most Democrats, is more comfortable with privatization of education, including vouchers. But in, this is a case where you're like, whoa, this is this starts to test the limits of what, as a taxpayer, I'm willing to accept. And I think in part because there's, I think, pretty credible allegations of corporal punishment and abuse of children. They're not learning basic skills. There's potential fraud going on here, depending on how you would define fraud. And, you know, to me, I think I do have these sort of like test cases, like the radical idea where you would give somebody money 
and just allow them to homeschool or figure out their own education. But in a world where we're regulating our schools and regulating the flow of public dollars in a, in a basket of different public dollars, and we're doling it out in an unequal way, I do think it's probably fair to ask for some basic skills instruction in return. Yeah, and I think that's because we are putting government dollars behind it. If it was completely independent, I think this is um, a separate issue, but right. certainly because there are instances in which it's not just like a typical voucher program that's being applied here. There are like specific carve outs and additions that are measurably taking away from public schools in the area. To me that like the solution isn't, oh, there's like take vouchers away from them or something. Right. It's like expand these programs so that it's not just favoring one subset of the population and it can actually access the people who want it and want to apply it in different ways and allow the free market to kind of play out there a little bit more. But I think this is certainly an extreme version of what can happen when a private religious institution becomes wrapped up in the federal government through right. this funding. And it's 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 difficult because you have not only education standards, but then also a separate religious tradition, which I want to respect and I want to allow people to um, engage in through their education. So it's it's obviously a very slippery, tricky situation. And as that video that we played alluded to, it's also something that government officials are afraid to get involved in because that's a voting block that, that matters and, and tends to vote pretty uniformly. Yeah, and I think... The U.S. isn't the only country that's been dealing with this. You know, there's, you know, Israel, uh, the finance minister, Avigdor Lieberman, actually was really pushing hard to crack down on these institutions. Back in May, he said that there was no reason to fund Haredi Torah uh, institutions that teach what he called idleness, and that if they don't teach core subjects such as English and math, they can, quote, do it at their own expense, not of the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And so that's within Israel. And we're talking about Avigdor Lieberman, who is, I wouldn't say like, he's a, he's a fairly conservative uh, guy within yeah. uh, Israeli politics, but he was accused by the Likud, uh, by a Likud member, Israel Katz, a former finance minister of anti-Semitism, quote, acting like the greatest anti-Semite in history. So I think like what happens here is even in Israel, people are being accused of being anti-Semites for trying to get a handle on these institutions. And I would say there are varying degrees of reactions that seem to echo that in the US. You got Ben Shapiro saying there are 1.1 million students in New York City public schools. The public school system there is a disaster. The New York Times has supported policies that promote its failures. So the New York Times is laser focused on 50,000 students in private Hasidic boys schools. There's a reason for that. And then he goes on, like he doesn't explicitly say it's anti-Semitism, so I wanna be fair to him. I think there is a good point to be made there though, because these 50,000 students are from families who are choosing to put their children in that private school system and opting into that. And these millions of students that are trapped in a public school system with truly nowhere else to go, I think that there's a level of accountability that I've seen a double standard in holding just the public school system in general to account. And so I can but be we sensitive fall into that. We're as hard on the public no, school course, system. No, of course, of course, of yeah. course. But I would I I can be sensitive to like a I, I think the historical sense that people are getting called out very specifically, but I mean, I don't agree with him. That doesn't mean that you don't call out right. problems where they are. But I think that in the scheme of things, there is, there's something to be said that it's at least these are families that are opting into this scenario versus the millions of families that don't have an option in right. the public school system. But I do think like one thing that's interesting is I agree, like I think that there's family autonomy and I think absent the abuse, which seems yeah, credible. Yeah. 
that like you don't have autonomy to abuse your children, which I would want to hear from him more on that, not just on the educational front. But once again, we are there. There are few institutions out there that are as hard on the public school system as we are. And so, putting oh, aside yeah, Brian Rosenthal, who we yeah. know and we've interviewed, who's one of the two authors here. I don't know Eliza Shapiro at all, but I know Brian Rosenthal. He's not an ideologue. You know, we interviewed him about the New York City MTA, and he was just as hard on the MTA. I think he's a guy who just doesn't like waste. He doesn't like government inefficiency. And but then there are stories within here like Heim Fisher, who was a student who went through these institutions and says, I'm the third generation born and raised in New York City. And still, when I was 15, I could barely speak English. And he talks about just how he struggled as a person. Now, I'm not saying I want to intervene and make his parents make different decisions, but I do think including their voices matters here. Well, and also tying taxpayer money to certain benchmarks is completely fair. But I think there's an even more nuanced debate here, which is there are a lot of people, I think there was an article in 2021 from Eli Spitzer and Mosaic. There's Leibovitz and Tablet. And they're each making, I think, more nuanced arguments. Some of them are have come out of this system. Some of them are just really familiar mm-hmm. with it. And some, you know, Spitzer is basically arguing, I thought it was a very balanced piece, we'll put it I in did the as well. show notes, where he's like, look, these institutions aren't good at even the things they want to be good at, which is like teaching people to be like Talmudic scholars. But he was also, I think he took aim as did Leibovitz at the aims of the people critiquing these institutions mm-hmm. saying, look, like these are institutions that have different goals than you have. They they want to yeah. create a strong sense of community. They um, they want to teach people to be religious scholars, not, you know, they don't necessarily want to send their kids to college. In some cases, they have the opposite goals of that. And I respect that. And they, you know, Leibovitz, I think, cites a study in the Journal of Psychology, which shows that Haredi Jews are happier. And I'm all about all of that. I just think like, I think you, you, you and I are on the same page of this, that once we start involving public money, then you have to start inviting the public into a conversation about where your institutions are doing. Yep, 100%. And one quote from um, Spitzer that I think demonstrates just sort of the moderation that he has of respecting the religious traditions and the way that this community kind of bucks some of our more traditionally liberal education principles. Um, He wrote, if they wish to get the majority of Hasidic parents on board, then their most urgent priority is to demonstrate how specific forms of instruction can be introduced into Hasidic schools without imperiling its overall educational purpose. And I think that talking past that educational purpose of instilling religious values is where we can kind of create like a reactionary resistance to any sort of change. And so I appreciate his, his take on that. Yeah, I think a lot of people criticizing these don't want any money to go to any religious institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way our, our government treats First Amendment concerns as it relates to private schools is as long as you're on equal footing with secular institutions in the way that we dole out money, that's that's what it means for the government not to further a religion. But it's a fascinating story. And I think what's the politics of this are also very interesting. As you mentioned, there's, you know, we, we heard from somebody who talks about how this community votes as a block that obviously affords them a certain amount of power. What I find as somebody who's a, a, an advocate for school choice is that you've got people like Eric Adams and Andrew Yang very silent on this. And then you've got people who are super anti-choice in almost every other context who are very silent on this as well. So it almost unites people across the spectrum to be like, they don't want to go near this, which I find just as a political story, very interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in terms of where this is going to go, New York just approved new educational regulations that require private schools to meet a benchmark, but how that will be enforced and how vague that bill is is just still open for debate and we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and just kudos to the the authors of this article. They spent years on this. They interviewed a ton of different people. I think like obviously they're, they're catching a lot of arrows on this, but I think 
this is to me like personally i think this is this is good journalism and falls in line with some of the things i've seen from rosenthal before like this is this is a hard case to crack they did it knowing that they were going to be accused of a lot of different things and and i find it a very useful resource even if i don't agree with all the anecdotes of somebody who's run schools, you can easily find people leaving an institution and paint one particular view. Yeah. But I think when you take the anecdotes that they have and then layer in objective data, you could say, even if I don't necessarily trust all the selection of anecdotes, the data about the academic achievement coming out of these institutions speaks for itself to me. All right. Well, we've got a case of fraud going on in Mississippi, Ricky, and you know, people who are new to the show. I used to run schools in Mississippi. I know a lot of the people involved in this story. And I think this centers on a couple of different characters here. So this is there's, there's reporting out of Mississippi Today, which is a nonprofit journalism institution out of Mississippi funded by Avon, um, Avon Barksdale, Jim Barksdale. I wish Avon Barksdale funded it. But um, Jim Barksdale, the former Netscape CEO, funded this independent journalism outlet, which is amazing and, and breaks a lot of stories. They did a lot of good stuff on the water crisis, for example. And they've been following the story for a while about what is the largest case of public fraud in Mississippi history. And it brings in a lot of characters that you wouldn't expect, including the wrestler, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, who's accused of misusing $2 million in public funds uh, meant for the state's welfare system. Uh, but a lot of the reporting this week has been focused on uh, Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre, who's from Mississippi, who for a while now has been embroiled in this scandal. Um, he had to give back over a million dollars that he received uh, in order to, you know, among other things, try to get a, a volleyball court or like stadium or whatever we call it yeah. built for his daughter's uh, volleyball team. Um, well, so that yeah. that million dollars was between 2017 and 2018, and that was specifically for autographs and for motivational speeches he was supposed to give that he did not give. And he was already ordered to pay that back, which he did. But he then they said, well, you also have to pay interest. So he has an outstanding balance of $228,000 that he owes to the state. But then there's this additional level where he also supposedly proposed a volleyball stadium at the University of Southern Mississippi, which is what you said, like he went there and the governor went there and his daughter is going there on the volleyball team. And he was collaborating behind, uh, like in private texts with the governor who basically instructed him on how to apply for this funding for $5 million under the welfare system and get that money from specifically the allocated welfare funds for a volleyball stadium. And it's pretty clear based on the text that came out that both the governor and him were pretty on the same page on where that money was coming from. And this is not a sports story, but sports journalists have waded in. Uh, let's go to Shannon Sharp. You got to be a sorry mofo mm. to steal from the lowest of the low. Skip, they, they, Mississippi is the poorest state in our country. It is. It's citizens. So if they're the poorest state, Brett Favre is taken from the the the, uh, uh, the underserved. You made a hundred plus million dollars in the NFL, and the about what he didn't know. This is what Brett Favre text. If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? So if you got to ask your, if you got to ask this question, is there any way the media can find out? You already know you're doing something wrong. There's so much attention on Brett Favre, which we'll come back to that, but I, I don't want to lose 
the scale of this entire problem here, which is this is $70 million is what the former head of the welfare agency, the state welfare agency is accused of squandering. Uh, and just to put that $70 million uh, number in perspective, the state of Mississippi gets $86 million in welfare uh, money from the federal government a year. So it's almost a year's worth yeah. of uh, money. And even just the money that Brett Favre is accused of stealing uh, is about the amount of money to feed 5,500 children in a year. Yeah, and they also reject 90% of the people who apply for welfare in the state despite having a 20.3% poverty rate, which is, I think, the highest in the country or certainly by many metrics, they're the poorest state in the country. So it's particularly grotesque, especially considering Favre's context as having come from the NFL in the right. first place. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that text that he read aloud, I think it's pretty damning when you ask, could the media find out? Like, right. then there is a problem and clearly we'll have to to, we'll have to see how this goes, but they were both questioned, the governor and Favre, by the FBI. The former and, governor, yeah. Yeah, and um, in September, they were questioned by the FBI and neither have been charged, but there's been a civil complaint filed. And yeah, it's just, it's it's pretty shocking. What I find fascinating about the story is there's a new governor named Tate Reeves. Now, he and the former governor don't really get along, but it seems like from some of this reporting that there's at least allegations that the current governor is is kind of having the back of the old governor. So you've got this guy, the, the former U.S. attorney, Brad Piggott, who was hired by the state to find the misappropriated mm -hmm. funds. And then Piggott issued a subpoena to get more answers about specifically this volleyball arena. And then he was swiftly terminated. And the current governor, Tate Reeves, was clear that he signed off on this and he accused Piggott of having, quote, a political agenda and wanting the spotlight. I can't even fathom because he, Favre wrote a proposal under the guidance of the governor on how to pull it off to the Department of Human Services. And I'm not sure even despite the fact that they had the highest office in, in the state on board, I don't know how they didn't expect that this would come back. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's a huge percentage of the funding that was supposed to go to families in need. And it's possible that Brett Favre, if I were his lawyer, I'm not rooting for him in this case, but if I were his lawyer, I'd be like, you know, this guy has gotten hit on the head too many times. He doesn't know what the, head, the Department of Human Services does. He doesn't know that's welfare money. To be clear, there isn't that smoking gun yet. There's what Shannon Sharp pointed out, which is that Favre knew he was doing something wrong. You could tell from those text messages. It also seems clear that he knew the agency he was interacting with and the nonprofit that was funneling yeah. money from that agency. I mean, the damning part of this is that he doesn't know if they want them or if the media could find out where it came from referring right. to the money. So clearly he knows it's at at the very least, not from a savory source. Right. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see the kind of claims that Favre makes here. I think a lot of people would be like, well, he gave the money back, but like, that's not- Well, he gave the money that was directly interest. to yeah. him. But that's back. not enough. Even if you give money back, if you rob a liquor store yeah, and then, then you give it back, you still go to jail. But then there's also you know? still the outstanding situation of potentially like undermining the Department of Human Services for the volleyball right. or an addition, which he didn't personally take that money. So he hasn't given that money back, but right. he just gave the motivational speaking public dollars back, which is also strange in the first place. I think this gets to a larger question about this state of Mississippi. And I think it's a microcosm for some of the politics that happen around the country. When we talked about the Jackson water crisis, yeah. it was very clear to me, I think, and I, to be clear, I think the city of Jackson screwed a lot of that up. And in, in many ways, I think they bear the majority of the blame for that. Something that we haven't talked about since I was down there. It just became very clear that they ignored major warnings in the mm -hmm. water crisis. But I think this, 
this welfare scandal tells us that the state officials in Mississippi, too many of them, don't view the poorest of Mississippi as people that they're responsible for. They view the money that they spend on whether it's the poorest people, on roads, bridges, et cetera. I saw this in Mississippi. You got the people who are like, they get the contracts to build the highway. You get the people who get the contracts to build public housing. You get the people who, you know, in this case, are administering welfare funds to a nonprofit and they're treating it like it's their money, not money to serve the underserved. And this is, you know, a lot of people in Mississippi, even the most right-wing people I know, would say that if they didn't get federal funds, Mississippi would not even resemble an American state. That's how much they're relying on federal funds. And what's really, really scary is that that money is not reaching the people who need it the most. And it's it's part of a callous disregard for the most vulnerable amongst us. Yeah, and it opens up a whole suite of questions about federal funding and state um, state responsibility to add, allocate that properly. Right. And does that mean the federal government withholds it? Or how does that all shake out in the end? But we have... I mean, certainly, I think the theme of this episode here will be yeah. misappropriation. Mis- misappropriation of funds. <laughs> well, w- but- one, yeah, one final thing just to, to put on the radar of people is I have no idea what the current governor's culpability is here. Yeah. I've done a lot of work with him. We helped pass a charter law together. The FBI is now involved. I don't know what Tate Reeves was worried about. It seems to me that there are a lot of people who have stuff to worry about when it comes to this money because that's a lot yeah. of money to to misspend and it seems like there are a lot of people that potentially have a lot of inconvenient stuff coming their way. It could go all the way up to the governor, who knows, but it, it does seem like this is not a story that's going to go away anytime soon. It's not just Certainly specific to not. Brett Favre. Brett Favre makes it a sexy story, but like all these names that people don't know, these are the people I think who have the most to worry about. Absolutely. Ricky, you were one, I think, or somewhere around then when uh, the original 9-11 tragedy happened. We just passed another anniversary. It gives us an opportunity to take stock of some of the decisions we've made ever since. And in, in the case of you, decisions that you've lived with your entire life, you wanted to talk about the TSA. Yes, I think annually in the libertarian world, this is the time of year where people kind of shoot their shots at a federal agency that (laughs) maybe has gone a little awry with good intentions in the beginning, I certainly believe. Um, It was in the wake of 9-11 under the Aviation and Transportation Security Act, Bush established the TSA with a 100 to 0 vote in the Senate to get federal agents behind making sure that airports and airlines are safe and secure. And I think that's a very understandable goal But the question then becomes when you have all these small private agencies that maybe weren't at that point in time even doing what we would just rudimentarily expect today in terms of airport security, there's been very little accountability in making sure that the TSA is actually doing its job at all, period, in the first place. But um, right now, there are 54,000 employees with $8 billion and half a billion passengers go through every year. So it's a huge job. But... There are some pretty shocking statistics in terms of how effective they actually are and what we just expect that they're doing. Before we even get there, because honestly, if I'm being honest, yeah. un- until we decided to cover this story, I had forgotten that I've lived in a world without a TSA. So what did that world look like? Like 
that can probably give us a sense of what some of the alternatives could be, right? Well, so at that point in time, um, airport security was privatized. And so you could like airlines- It's or, like pre 9-11. Yeah, pre 9-11. Um, so airports would contract or just provide their own security systems. It wasn't federalized. There weren't the same level of standards. I mean, you would know better than I because I could never just like waltz into an airport. Yeah. But I don't ever remember it being like that, but I guess it was like that. Yeah. Definitely more so. I mean, there weren't even some of the baseline things that I think that like, I, I don't think there's anyone in the libertarian world that just says like, or maybe there are some extremes, mm -hmm. but just like pack your backpack and hop on without any questions being asked. But I think we we all kind of, we see all these things of take off your shoes and do this. And so we feel like we're doing something to actually protect ourselves. But mm -hmm. theoretically, a lot of that might just be the prevention mechanism of having that be done in the first place because they've done um, tests with undercover agents to see how effective the TSA is at actually stopping weapons and this is the result. TSA officers failed 95% of the time during undercover operations designed to test their ability to detect explosives and weapons at airport security checkpoints. Teams with the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General's office posed as passengers and attempted to pass through airport checkpoints with mock explosives and weapons. A government official with knowledge of the results say TSA failed 67 out of 70 tests. To miss 67 out of 70 uh, different instances is extremely alarming and I would say even dangerous. Ricky, let me play devil's advocate for a second because this is startling data. Let's pretend for a second, like some of the people I think who, who argue in favor of what the TSA is doing will say, well, there's a deterrence factor. It's sometimes like just the sheer presence of agents stop like the craziest and most reckless yeah, among definitely. us from going 100%. through. What's your sense of that? I mean, my sense is that's almost definitely true because we don't hear about all these foiled plots all the time. We we heard about some, like the TSA would publicize. Um, there was one guy, I think his name's Kevin Brown, who had the, in, like, the materials to make pipe bombs in his checked luggage and they stopped him. It was checked. He wasn't going to do anything mm. on the airplane itself. And they publicized that as like a big victory, but we don't hear publicized examples of people that were actually like going to do what I think we um, imagined might happen post 9-11. Right. So we don't have firm data on what's been foiled and what, I mean, it could be a national security issue. But regardless, if you're going to privatize security or argue for like, I mean, no one's arguing for not having agents around right. at, at any point, but when you have a, a federalized system where that was 95% failure rate, others, other studies have shown 70%, 80%, 90%, but the national average tends to be 80%. If four out of five times they're failing at their very basic job and they're getting $8 billion a year, I haven't seen near enough demand for accountability right. for them. Well, it's, it's money, but it's also the inconvenience. It's like trying to go through an airport is tough. And it's also, it's kind of arbitrary. You know, I get stopped a lot in random searches, like especially after 9-11 in that period of time where I think they were doing more racial profiling before. Like there was a ton of random searches back then. And it would, like the difference between, you know, being told you can go through the normal way and being subject to those other more intrusive searches is a ton of time and inconvenience and a loss of dignity that I know a lot of people have to go through pretty continuously. Yeah, there are tons of accusations that come up all the time, like being searched too aggressively or too like in a way that was 
potentially like abusive. There's an elderly woman who made headlines like a decade ago because she claims that they made her take her soiled diaper off in order to be pat down. But I mean, those are obviously the extreme cases, but also in terms of our kind of spending trope in this episode (laughs) here, just one example of how they're not accountable to anyone essentially is they spent um, $150,000 a pop on 200 air puffer machines in 2011 that were supposed to like, like puff air at people and detect bombs. I'm not sure what Mm. the idea was behind it. I'm sure there was a reason, but I don't understand. But a $30 million investment. Turns out it didn't work. So they paid to store them for years and then had to pay to destroy them. And so they just wasted $30 million. And then in 2012, an audit found that they were storing $184 million worth of taxpayer-paid equipment, just collecting dust that they were paying $3.5 million annually to store. And we're spending 10 times more in security than we were pre-9-11 and way more than um, comparable countries. Canada, almost all of Europe have um, privatized or at least private public partnerships in terms of their airport security and Canada spends 40% less per capita. So there are plenty of examples of better run systems. And I think that this was good intentions gone awry. Yeah. Obviously, like, you know, somebody who supported the TSA will be like, well, we haven't had any major atrocity like 9-11 since. But then I guess the the retort to that would be, well, compare it to other countries that also have avoided attacks too, that haven't done it the way that we do. Yeah. And what does the TSA specifically as a federal agency prevent that a private contracted agency of agents wouldn't. And one thing I found interesting in your research was that San Francisco airport actually uses private contractors, which I found really fascinating. Yep, there's a bid system. Um, And so San Francisco is the perfect example. I think they roughly get like 2.5% of air of traffic and they cleared 65% more passengers than their counterparts in LAX. And so they're more efficient and they're a pretty perfect example of what would happen if we would privatize more of our major uh, airports. And we have officials at Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Charlotte airports and Phoenix that all have desire have expressed desire to be allowed into this bid system to at least try out a private version. And one analysis from the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure found that if we made the same system that they have in San Francisco expand to 35 of our busiest airports, we could save one billion dollars over five years. Mm. I find this fascinating because tomorrow I'm going to get on an Amtrak train to Hudson, New York. I'm not going to go through any of this security. Historically, I understand. I wouldn't want to get on an airplane if there was no security. Yeah, well, like you're trapped to this a degree. This gets to my that. radical idea. So okay. I think that <laughs> I want to go a step further here because I, I I can only put myself in my my own shoes and think about are there people like me? Like if I had a flight this afternoon, you gave me two options. You said you go Delta Airlines, you got to go through TSA or private security, and if you go through American Airlines, no security, and but you have to take the risks involved in that. I would take American every single time because I don't, I just think that like, I'm not worried going on the, the Amtrak tomorrow. Like I don't, the New York city subway system is if one someone of, had bad intentions. They would also do the same every but single But they could time. do that in the New York city subway system, which would induce as much fear as anything else. They could do it in Amtrak and they have tried. Uh, and as you know, as we talked about, it's not the TSA that's stopping these people. It's yeah, other law enforcement. I mean, okay, but then what about like international flights? Or I mean, there's different. I don't have regulations. a different exception for international flights, but that's also yeah, to me know. is a customs I... thing, not just a security in the airplane thing. Like I think it's really important that in our borders, whether it's by land, sea, or air, that we're uh, 
doing the best we can to account for what's coming across the border, right? But uh, but for that, I, I'm just saying, like, how many people are like me who would be like, I know for sure they do it because they pay for clear, they pay for pre- TSA. Yeah, but clear doesn't make you not have to do anything security wise. Like it just makes it easier. Yeah, it but makes it easier for you. But that's also like a you. free market yeah, innovation. Yeah. yeah, but I like I don't know how many nuts are in clear or not or what their system well, is but to, what is what does clear allow you to it basically go past just a that. fancy way that they get your eyes yeah to but like that doesn't that doesn't negate the security but i don't process. have to take my laptop out i don't have to take my shoes off i yeah, don't go well, to the same machines as everybody else this would be a case for privatization and different like innovations and in how we do this right. service but i think you know that the heritage foundation um advocates for a kind of middle ground here where you still have a TSA that doesn't manage all of these employees, which I think is kind of the issue here because these employees are like some of the worst paid, the highest turnover, and they've turned into like a management arm of the federal government rather than creating the standards of just like the basics, baselines. We should be innovating in how we do this because it's still a very new process and a lot of the things that we do are very performative and um, don't actually do much to keep us safe, clearly based on the data that we have of how many people can get things through. There's like a 90% report passenger survey that people said that they could get illicit substances through with no issue whatsoever. But I think that to me, I'm satisfied with the Heritage Foundation's uh, proposal here, which is have the TSA set the guidelines, analyze the data from private contractors, make sure that they're hitting benchmarks of making of keeping people safe and allow the private sphere to innovate, to compete against each other, to be more effective, efficient at doing their job. I will not be flying American Airlines in your world. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, that settles that debate. Let's talk about one last thing. And I think this has less to do with, this is our one non-government inefficiency story we're going to touch on today, but we just want to update our audience on the post-row world. So we've got uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's announced a f- proposed 15-week national abortion ban, and he intended to unite the party, but he said quite the opposite approach. Just to be clear, this includes exceptions for race, rape, uh, incest, life, or physical health of the mother. Uh, But it doesn't seem like a lot of people are signing on to his proposal. A lot of his Senate colleagues seem to be, you know, I think towing the line on this, like it's a state rights issue. But Lindsey Graham himself has not been consistent on this. Because I've been consistent. I think states should decide the issue of marriage and states should decide the issue of abortion. I'm not exactly sure what's going on here and why he's he feels like this is a good time for this yeah, in the lead up to the midterm election. Yeah, everyone uniformly, even the Republicans are like, no, this is a state right issue and that's what we've said, except for Herschel Walker, which yeah. I mean, read into that what you will. But I, I'm sympathetic to people who didn't believe this narrative that Republicans were overturning Roe because they wanted c- to control women's bodies and because they really wanted to ban abortion in liberal states too. Like I, I wanted to put faith into what most of the Republicans are upholding is that this is a state issue and that this shouldn't have been federal in the first place. But he's just giving ammo to the, the worst possible interpretation of the post row world and what Republicans' um, intentions are here on the basis of completely 
flipping on this without any good explanation. Yeah, let me try to give an explanation just for the politics of this, which is there are certain groups, including the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group and a coalition of state groups that actually buy into the strategy here and that have actually been helping Lindsey Graham pressure members on this. And their strategy is a floor, as they see it, not my language, a floor on uh, on certain anti-abortion measures in liberal states and a ceiling in states that are more conservative. And, you know, just to, to keep track here, states with full abortion bans as of today are Alabama, Indiana, Mississippi, South Dakota, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, Idaho, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, and Wisconsin. States with six-week bans are Georgia and Ohio, and 15-week bans are Arizona and Florida. So basically they would say, like some of those more, uh, you know, I would say stringent states, the pro-life groups are like, or at least this particular pro-life group that's working with Graham is like, all right, that is our ceiling right now. Let's get a floor. So they seem to want that. Other senators don't seem to be going on board with that, but that does seem to be a political strategy. They also seem to- Well, look, it seems to be Lindsey Graham's political strategy and no one yeah, else's. Or at least the advocacy groups. Yeah, the advocacy groups, but they're not politicians. Like this is specifically they're, bizarre to me. Yeah, I don't think this is good politics for them heading into the midterm. I think most of them want to forget about this because you look at, for instance, what you know, Blake Masters or Mastriano or Mike De, uh, DeWine in uh, in Ohio. These are people who've been very forceful and and you know, saying things like abortions murder and and saying like they're going to be pretty you know, like aggressive on this, but have recently been very quiet on the issue, mm -hmm. including Masters, like you know, basically erased his abortion positions from his website. So yeah. a lot of people don't think this is a winning issue for them. But the polling would suggest that if you were to frame something and this were your goal, that the polling in the first trimester for abortion, abortions for Americans is fairly pro-choice. Once you start to get into the second trimester, yeah. which is where Graham is starting to, you know, that where he's wading into that waters, the polling is way more mixed. And so mm -hmm. I think what they're saying is let's put Democrats on the defensive on this issue, get them to start advocating for abortion rights later and later into the pregnancy. They call it late term. That's not technically what this is about because late term, I think, is a, is a term that's changed over time. And this would include some things that are late term and some things that aren't late term. But that's their strategy here. Or at least Graham and some of these pro-life groups are like, hey, well, let's the, get the Democrats on the defensive. Yeah, I wouldn't say their strategy because like every other Republican basically is saying that he's gone rogue here. Like, yeah. I don't feel that's the Republican strategy. But to your point on the 15 week ban and like drawing that line where it is, that is generally like most of Europe. There are very few countries that do draw the line above that. But I mean, so in terms of the global consensus, that's one thing that Graham is using to defend that. I The, the line is pretty clear in public in, in the public sphere, but the problem for me is not about like where that line is. It's the fact that this is federal period and that mm -hmm. a couple months ago, he was a completely different person on mm -hmm. this issue. So I'm not even really interested in debating the merits of where he wants to draw the line for the entire country when that was very expressly not his intent in the first place. Yeah, I think this, you know, we're now, just to scene set for our audience, we are now officially in the general election phase this past Tuesday was the last series of primaries around the country, including New Hampshire. And it's a good time to just say, all right, where are we as a country? Uh, where are the politics heading? There was a really good Nate Cohn piece in the New York Times that talked about how traditionally the president, we've talked a little bit about this, 
the president's party gets destroyed in mm-hmm. midterm elections. You know, in certain cases, losing 60 seats like Obama, I think, did in 2010, um, what he called the shellacking. You know, uh, Bush used similar language in, in uh, 2006 when they got crushed. I think they called it a thumping. Um, you know, 2018, Trump got destroyed in the midterm elections. But uh, Nate Cohn was arguing that the one thing that is interesting about this uh this midterm election there are two couple things one is just the the sheer amount of democrats who are outperforming biden's polling numbers and he looked at historical data about how a lot of the republicans in 2018 were underperforming trump's standing so that was interesting and then he said well why could this be the case he said he looked at google searches and he showed that in history you've never seen anybody crack like 10 percent of the previous party's nominee getting like interest of Google searches compared to the current president. Mm-hmm. Usually it's like 90, 10, 95, yeah. 5, the, whoever the sitting president versus who their their previous opponent was, except now we're over 50% of Google searches today are, um, if you compare Trump to Biden, over 50% are Trump. So he still continues to be the person that people are focused on. And you combine that with the fact that Democrats are running almost as the opposition party because of issues like abortion. They're saying, we don't have the power. So I think whether people agree with that or not, there's a chance that that dynamic leads to Democrats overperforming in the Senate uh, in this election. Like, I could be wrong about this, Nate Cohn could be wrong about this, but this seems like a possible theory about what what we're about to see in the next month and a half. Yeah, well, this also comes as West Virginia um, just prohibited nearly all abortions except for uh, life-saving instances, rape and incest, which it was previously 20 weeks. And I think we can expect to see more of this coming down the line. And This is obviously not such a clear-cut partisan issue. And the more that instances like the Lindsey Graham thing happen, the more I think that they're playing straight into the Democrats' hands. So um, we'll have to see just how much that advances. But as Peter Loge of George Washington University said, Democratic strategists around the country are doing happy dances. I can can attest to that. I I think that's (laughs) probably true. I would say that, you know, I caution a lot of my friends in Democratic circles to be careful because there's a lot of time between now and the election. And I would say the headwinds are serious. Like Mm -hmm. Biden is seriously unpopular and there's a lot of hidden issues in the polling, right? A lot of the polling shows Democrats doing better now than they were before, but a lot of these are states that have had polling issues for Democrats. There's also like all the theories about how, why the polling failed before, which include like, I think a very plausible theory that non-college educated voters don't respond to polls in the same way that college educated voters do. College educated voters tend to be more democratic. So that, and that could change from state to state, right? Like a Wisconsin non-college educated voter and a Georgia non-college educated voter could be different and that could cut different ways in the polls. But all I'll say is like none of this data is super reliable yet. Uh, the election is still a, a ways to go, but Democrats are unquestionably in a better position than they thought they'd be a few months ago, in part because of this abortion issue. I think in part because of Trump and all the stuff happening with Mar-a-Lago and all these investigations and just Trump's personality. And so I just find this interesting. We'll keep an eye on this and we'll do more coverage. We're, we're going to spend more time talking to and, and looking into the trends heading into the election. And, you know, this is where things get exciting. This is where I, we get to start to see some debates get to see um, more and more polling data. We also get to see what people are spending their money on. This is really where people start to spend and what kind of messages they're pushing. 
Well, that's our show. Make sure to hit subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Hit that like button. And also check out our newest show, Pulso y Pendulo. We're dropping our first episode next week. But we'll be right back here with the Lost Debate Show on Tuesday. <laughs>